It has stood the test of time. God's book, the Bible, still relevant in today's complex world. It is written, sharing messages of hope around the world. You know, dear friends, one of the things I enjoy is I enjoy a good pen. And recently I was given a gift of a pen that was made from the oak on the York Minster. The York Minster, of course, in York, England. There was a fire there many, many years ago. And from those timbers, they've been able to turn pens and make nice fountain pens from them. But you know, this show is not about fountain pens. It is about foundations. And why is that important? Well, you see, when the York Minster, a large cathedral was built, it was built with no foundation. How did they find that out? Several years ago, the architects who care for the maintenance of the facility noticed that the walls on the side began to bow out slightly. What was happening? As they began to research, what they found was that the York Minster, a large cathedral built out of stone, had actually simply been built upon the fallen timbers of the church that was there before. There was no foundation. Now those architects were able to save the York Minster. They dug under it and they did what architects and engineers do and they put foundations in after the fact. But foundations are critical. And just as they are critical in building structures, foundations in the spiritual life are absolutely essential as we weather the storms of life. And so to help talk about the foundations in the spiritual life, I've guessed with me, he's been with us for several shows now, Pastor Carl Satalabasides. Pastor Carl, welcome back to It Is Written Canada. Always good to be here in Toronto. You know, Pastor Carl, I am excited about what we've been studying. You know, this is an area of expertise for you. You spent 18 years of your life pastoring churches, then sensed a call to go into the world of teaching. You spent some time working on a PhD. You're about to wrap up your dissertation for that PhD. You spent five years teaching at the collegiate level and you're studying about the presence of God and that leads directly to the sanctuary. We've spent four shows now looking at the sanctuary, looking at what is happening with the sanctuary. And now as we enter into that time, we want to ask some questions because what we've seen is, number one, there is a sanctuary, a real sanctuary in heaven. Number two, God gave instructions for the building of an earthly sanctuary that we might learn about him through that earthly structure. But when that earthly structure was destroyed, there was the encouragement to turn to the heavenly. We spent time with this last show knowing and understanding that the sanctuary is really the lens. And we use that illustration of going to the eye doctor when the eye doctor says, number one, number two, 
that one that brings with crystal clear clarity, the sanctuary clarifies not just the Bible, not just a relationship with Jesus, but really clarifies life itself. Where we ended is we talked about how there's been a grand attack against the sanctuary. Daniel 8, Revelation 13 predict that the sanctuary would be trampled underfoot through the rise of philosophy. And where we ended is we were talking about historically, we just don't hear about the sanctuary. So where I want to begin today, because we want, we, we, we want to talk about the hope, because I asked you that question in our last show, is there any hope? And you said, yes, the restoration of the sanctuary. So here's the question I want to begin with today. How can we restore the sanctuary foundation in our own lives? And I understand for us to understand how we restore it in our own lives. Maybe we should look at scripture and see how, when that paradigm, when that lens has been lost, how God has restored his people to have the foundation of the sanctuary. Do we have any examples? Can we go somewhere to learn this? Yeah, sure. We spent some time in the book of Daniel, and even in the book of Daniel, in uh, Daniel chapter 1, it, it starts with, of course, Nebuchadnezzar coming in and hauling off all the vessels of the sanctuary to the, to, to, uh, the house of his God. Well, eventually, uh, you know, Jeremiah had prophesied in uh, Jeremiah chapter 25 that God's people would remain there uh, 70 years and that afterwards they, they would come back. And when they came back, they ended up rebuilding that sanctuary, which was the center of their life before. All of the, uh, all of the books after the Babylonian exile, like the, like the minor prophets there, they all talked about it, like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi especially. And then you have the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which talk about God's people leaving Babylon and coming back towards, the, towards Jerusalem because they realized that this was part of the plan of God. And I think as we look back on that history, that biblical history, it was a microcosm of what would happen to also to God's people like during the Dark Ages when the little horn would, through its philosophical thinking, obscure our vision of that heavenly sanctuary, eclipse it, if you will, and uh, there would also be a restoration on a much larger scale. So we can look back to immediate biblical history and say after the exile there are so many books, especially Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, which talk about the fact that this, uh, this sanctuary needed to be restored and uh, that's what gave them their hope, that's what gave them their sense of belonging, that's what gave them principles about worship and just about everything else. And you know, we see this early on with God's people, God's people go into, they, they, they are taken into captivity in Egypt. They're there for 400 years. And through that 400 years, undoubtedly, they lost sight of their relationship with God, how they relate to God. How does God restore and I, I'm going to introduce, and, and you may want to expand on this, how does God restore his image in his people when that image, that character has been lost? Yes, that's, that's a very good question. How does he restore that? Um, as we begin to behold him, that's how it begins, that's how it begins to happen. But what has often happened is that tradition and philosophy have been obscuring our view of him. 
And so we're beholding him through not the right lenses, through maybe lens one instead of lens two, you know, when you go to the optometrist. And because of that, our, our, our estimate of his character is not what it should be. And so we, uh, the sanctuary helps us then to refocus our vision as to, as to who God is. And I believe we're going to spend more time on this in the future regarding the character of God yes. in, in the great controversy. But um, I'm going to go to a text in Romans chapter 12, okay. verses 1 and 2 here, where I think you can see some sanctuary language being applied in a personal way. All right, that sounds towards, good. Towards you and I. Um, you know, at the center of that sanctuary was the, in the most holy place, was the presence of God. And the presence of God is where the throne is located in heaven. And, where you, and there you have the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. And the Ten Commandments would sit underneath that. So God, is, God and the commandments there are in, that heavenly, are in that heavenly scene, and they were duplicated also in the, in the earthly. And in Romans chapter 12... Um, along with that image in your mind is the whole image of the sacrificial system okay. and how the lambs were off, offered and they had to be without spot and without blemish. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Actually, that phrase, your reasonable service, could better be translated as an act of worship. Mm-hmm. And the Greek word is latria, which means an act of service or an act of worship. Okay. And so here we are. It's borrowing from the sanctuary imagery about us being a living sacrifice, which, is, which was what, what Christ was. And so the sanctuary points us to Christ. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And it also actually helps us to calibrate our view of him, especially on the cross, when he blended together justice and mercy. I mean, what a problem that God had. Mm-hmm. How was he going to be just and yet, and yet forgive us at the same time? Well, it took, it took the Son of God in order to be able to do that. And when we, when we behold his character, when we behold him through those lenses, then we begin to emulate that character in mm-hmm. our lives. This is a very powerful, because what we're seeing here, and again, it stands in direct opposition to the philosophical influences that have pervaded, frankly, have pervaded many churches and has pervaded society in general. And that is this idea that God doesn't want to interact with us, that God is out to get us, but rather the biblical view through the lens, the framework, the foundation of the sanctuary is that God wants personal interaction. And what we see is, and we've already read Exodus 25, 8, let them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. And it's actually very interesting for those that are watching, for those that are listening that have not uh, studied the sanctuary. The sanctuary was set up the wilderness sanctuary was set up at the very center of the the encampment of Israel. And so the sanctuary was set up at center and then all of the different tribes of Israel were set up around it, demonstrating God's desire to be central in our lives, his desire to be right in the midst of us. The temple itself, the temple, the, the, the permanent structure built in Jerusalem was built right at the center of the town. But here's what, what we're seeing is that the sanctuary shows us a lens, shows us a foundation, a framework of where God, where heaven 
and earth are integrated, where there is this, uh, too often when I hear people talk, they talk about heaven out there, we're here. And it's really uh, a, a, uh, a deist point of view that God kind of created the earth like a little top, sent it on a spin, and he's off there somewhere, and we're down here. Mm-hmm. But the sanctuary changes that, changes that, that lens, that understanding entirely, and we see this intimate integration between heaven and earth. What kind of Bible verses do we have to help see this integration where God actually not only wants to be a part of our lives, but is in fact a part of our lives and how does the sanctuary teach us that? Chris, let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. Okay. And I'm not going to, that's the, the chapter on the Ten Commandments, of course. And most of us will read that and say, well, okay, it says God spoke all these words. And it was surprising to me when I was doing a little, uh, digging a little deeper, I should say, that the scriptures actually pointed out that God's voice came not just from earth, but from heaven. And after having read the chapter so many times, I was incredulous and wondering how I could have missed it. (laughs) And so as you look at Exodus chapter 20, obviously it wraps up in verse 17, and then you have the people's reaction. And then in verse 22 of Exodus 20, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Mm -hmm. Very surprising. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 36, it, it, it also makes it clearer there. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the Ten Commandments given again, and Deuteronomy 4 is, is the, 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 the brief context before that. There's some really excellent warning there in uh, verse 14 and 15. He says, you know what? Take heed um, lest you make any image, because on that day, when I spoke the Ten Commandments, you didn't see anything. You only heard a voice, and that's, that's very significant. Yes. And we'll begin to capitalize on that later. But in verse 36 says, Out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice, that he might instruct thee. Mm-hmm. And upon earth he showed thee his great fire, and thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. And uh, basically, Nehemiah 9.13 says the same, very, very similar in recounting the Ten Commandments, that God's voice actually came from heaven. And so here we have God's voice coming from heaven and from earth at the same time, is what the text is revealing. Now, I need to go back to Greek thinking in here in Platonic philosophy for a moment, because this absolutely shatters that framework. Okay. Because in, in, in Platonic thinking, there is no past, present, and future. You know, when you and I are talking right now, talking assumes time. You right. can't talk without a past, a present, and a future. Right. But to them, when God speaks, there's no time. He speaks with outside of time. Well, that obviously changes the content of what God is speaking. And they readily admit that. And they say things like, well, the sanctuary where God wanted to dwell among us is just an allegory. Okay. It's not really real. It's just designed to show us that there's an interaction between God and us. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so they'll begin to allegorize that. So there's a, there's a timeless content and then there's an earthly content. But the Bible here is saying, no, the content that God speaks from heaven is exactly the same content that he's speaking on earth here as well. And this bridges the gap then between heaven and earth that has been so eclipsed by, by the little horn. 
We mentioned 1 Kings chapter 8 as well. And when Solomon was praying his dedicatory prayer as the temple was set up, he said, hear thou in heaven, and when thou hearest, forgive. Now here he is, he's speaking to his people, he's speaking to God up in heaven, but he's addressing God as if he's in heaven and he's expecting God to hear from heaven and to help him out when his people are in trouble. You know, there may be many viewers today that are in trouble and Solomon knowing the heart of man and knowing that we're so quick to stray from God brings up so many scenarios. And he says, hey, if your people are caught sinning and doing this and that, then remember, Lord, when they come back and confess their sins to hear from heaven and to forgive. Um, I want to go to the book of Revelation just to kind of tie in this, this close communication okay. between heaven and earth as That's, well. That sounds good. So let's, let's go to Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, Verse 13, uh, John sees Jesus as the Son of Man. Uh, in verse 12, he sees him in the context of the seven golden candlesticks. Yes. And then he's the high priest in verse 13. Now, in verse 16, it says, He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp sword, and uh, uh, his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And actually, I'm going to skip to uh, verse 20. It says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven messages that Jesus speaks and they all begin introducing him in some way and he is the one that is speaking. And so it, but it says in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's, of course, identifying Jesus as the speaker. That's right. So this message is actually coming from Christ. And the context here is in that heavenly sanctuary where he is among the seven golden candlesticks. Yes. When you get to the end of that message, and this happens to the end of every single message, like in verse 7, it says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the, so the message that Jesus originated, he sends to the angel, to the leader, perhaps to the elder of the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and the other churches. And as they begin to relate that message to the congregation, the end result is that the Holy Spirit is speaking not just to that individual church, but to all the churches. Mm -hmm. And so you have this dynamic interaction of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary originating the message. He is the Word of God Himself. He is sending that message through John. John is sending it then to the angel, the representative of all these seven churches. They are speaking the message, and the end result is that that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to all the churches. And I could go also and talk about the fact that many times throughout the book of Revelation, you have these angelic voices that are speaking. And the angelic voices are not just speaking by themselves. They are using human instruments in order to declare their message, like in Revelation chapter 14. Okay. Uh, and so it says in Revelation 14, verse 6, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every kindred, uh, tongue, and nation, and people. Well, it's phrased as if angels are speaking, but 
again, when you look at the pattern of the seven churches, the messages given to the leaders of the churches, they are the ones that are speaking it. Yes. And here in Revelation, it's almost as if the angels themselves are speaking it when you and I begin to proclaim that everlasting gospel. So Christ is speaking, the angels are speaking as we speak God's words, and there's this dynamic interaction going on then between heaven and earth. And you know what's so powerful about this, Carl, is that the devil, in an effort to separate us, wants people to believe that God doesn't want to have anything to do with us. Mm -hmm. In fact, there, there are kind of two polar opposites that are brought up. First is that God is so holy, so out there that we cannot have any communication with him. The, the timeless God. The timeless God. The second is, I am so filthy, so worthless that I can't interact with a most holy God. And what you're talking about is that the sanctuary provides a foundation and a framework that God desires interaction. Not only does he desire interaction, but has demonstrated that interaction throughout time, throughout space. And while it may be difficult to understand, because we're talking a lot about time and space, and some people might be, well, you know, you know, you know, speaking of the God who was and is and is to come, you know, the one who, who exists forever, and we're talking about this idea of timelessness, yet God doesn't exist in timelessness. God has intersected us. Well, he did more than intersect us. He created us in time, in space, and wants to interact with us in that time and in that space. And that gives us tremendous hope. And that's really what the sanctuary is all about, is the hope that he gives. And Chris, as you were talking, I mean, my mind was going to John chapter 1, verse 14. Please. Which, um, which is shrouded in sanctuary imagery and language, language as well. Now, notice, uh, well, I mean, look at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not, any, was not anything made that was made. And when you go to verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You mentioned Exodus 25, verse 8, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among, uh, among them. And here you find the God of the universe taking on human flesh. I mean, that's how desirous he is in order to try to connect with us. And it is this sanctuary image that tells us that um, God is not the timeless God out there. He's not the God of the Greeks. The God of Scripture is not the God of the Greeks. He's not, he's not the God that the medieval church has set up, the distant, the distant God. No, he has taken upon himself our flesh. And the sanctuary language is there that he might dwell among us. Beautiful thought. Powerful. It is very powerful. And, I, and, and, I, and as soon as you said that, I was thinking of John 3 and verse 17. We often quote John 3, 16, but John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It is the Greek word sozo, which is often translated salvation or to be saved, yes. but then it's also translated to be made well, to be healed. And I think about that word restored. Hmm. You see, God sent the Son ultimately to restore that framework, that foundation of the sanctuary. 
uh, which the beauty of it is, is even though Jesus came to this earth, even though Jesus died for our sins, the testimony of the scripture is he rose again and he rose again and went to a specific place. The Bible says that he goes to the sanctuary where he ministers on our behalf as our high priest. Absolutely. Now, Pastor Carl, this is going to be a tough question to answer in just the uh, few minutes that we have left. If we reject the heavenly sanctuary, can we still be faithful to the scriptures? It's going to be hard <laughs> because every, everything that we've been building points us to the fact that this is where God wants us to center our, our hopes. When everything earthly has been destroyed, you know, where, where can we turn? And mm -hmm. that time is, is quickly almost upon us. And so we really can't be. There's a story in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse, in verse 28 that, that really talks about this, that we're going to have to flesh out yes. uh, a little bit more. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing story about um, after Solomon's death with, with Rehoboam and Jeroboam and uh, the implications of setting up the two calves of gold, the implications for the authority of the Bible and for the sanctuary are quite profound. And uh, I'd like to take some time to flesh that out. We will definitely do that. We're going to do that in our next show together. But as we end today, what I wanted it to be very clear and very important is the bottom line is this. If we reject the sanctuary, it directly will lead to the rejection of the scriptures and the rejection of God. And we can actually see this. We can see this throughout time. As we have gone to a time of relativism where there is no absolute truth, the denial of the sanctuary crumbles the foundations where no one is able to survive. But the hope we have, as we've demonstrated today, those foundations can be restored. They can be restored as we place our faith and trust in God and His Word and turn ourselves to the sanctuary. Pastor Carl, as we end today, would you pray for us? Sure. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we're thankful for the biblical history of the past because it shows us that when the earthly sanctuary was trampled, God's people were led to rebuild that earthly sanctuary. And Lord, we've, many of us, wandered in the wilderness for many years and the sanctuary has been eclipsed. But now our vision is open. We can see Christ as our high priest in that heavenly sanctuary. And I pray that each and every one of us may cast our helpless souls upon him, that he may grant us wisdom and grace and power in every time of need is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. My dear friend, it is good news that the God of the universe desires personal interaction with you. Today, I want to offer you our Correspondence Bible School. Through that Correspondence School, you will be able to dive deep into a relationship with Jesus. Here's the information you need to receive those Bible study lessons. To request today's offer, just log on to www.ItIsWrittenCanada.ca That's www.ItIsWrittenCanada.ca and select the TV program tab. For Canadian viewers, the offer will be sent free and postage paid. For viewers outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you prefer, you may call toll-free at 1-888-CALL-IIW. 
That's 1-888-CALL-IIW. Call anytime. Lines are open 24 hours daily. That's 1-888-CALL-IIW. Or if you wish, you may write to us at It Is Written, Box 2010, Oshawa, Ontario, L1H7V4. Carl, thank you so much for helping us understand that God wants a relationship with each of us. It's been great, Chris. My dear friends, I hope you have found that hope in Jesus Christ. I hope you enjoyed today's program. I invite you to join us again next week. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.